0: I think I ought to begin with a disclaimer. I have very little formal theological education, but I've had a lifelong interest in theology, and I've been writing daily Bible notes. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. I've been writing daily Bible notes for over 35 years, as well as a time of editing them. As an English literature rather than a theology graduate, I tend to approach the Bible from a literary or narrative viewpoint, which leads me to see it much more as a collection of powerful stories rather than a propositional document that has to be decoded into a set of abstract principles. I've also spent 24 years as an active member of a Mennonite church, which is sadly now closed, uh, and a latterly, well, really, in at least 20 of those years as a regular preacher there, Uh, which gives me a somewhat different perspective on the Reformation, not least because the Mennonites belong to a tradition, the Anabaptist tradition, which has been persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants. So the title for this evening is The Bible, Can It Still Be Read as the Unique Truth About God? And I want to approach that tonight by examining what I consider to be the second most important three-letter word in the English Bible. You might easily guess that the most important three-letter word in the English Bible is God. I want to suggest that the second most important three-letter word is but, <laughs> and, <laughs> and specifically the but that, in, that appears in these verses which open the book of Hebrews. That's Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Now, excuse me. Why does verse 2 begin with the word but and not the word and? Surely if Jesus, amongst his many other roles, is the greatest of the prophets and has come in his own words to fulfill the law, it should be, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets, and in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. But the writer of Hebrews very deliberately chooses the word but, which implies a certain discontinuity as well as a connection. And while I don't know any history of Anabaptists specifically using this passage to justify their approach to the Bible, I do think it sums up their hermeneutic or their principle of interpreting the Bible, which is very different from that of the mainstream reformers. And I want to look at three aspects of that hermeneutic. Firstly, from the point of view of an Anabaptist interpretation, as I understand it, this little word, but, at a stroke, relativizes everything else that went before. The Bible can no longer be seen as a flat document, every part of which is equally relevant, or in the Bible's own term in 2 Timothy 3.16, useful, which is really the biggest claim that the Bible makes about itself is that it's useful. The word but implies that there's something greater here in Jesus when God speaks to us by a son. That the former communications or revelations were partial, incomplete, pieces of the picture of God, but not the whole picture. When I use the word relativize, and I know this is a word that can worry people, I don't mean to imply that the rest of the Bible becomes less important. I don't even mean that it becomes less authoritative, although the nature of its authority may change. What I do mean is that no part of the Bible can now be read independently of God's revelation in Jesus. Everything now has to be related to Jesus. And for the Anabaptist tradition, this means it has to be read in the the light of his life and his teaching, as well as in the light of his death and resurrection. This is what Anabaptist scholars call a Jesus-centered hermeneutic. And it essentially fills what worship scholar and liturgist Eleanor Crider, who was one of the founders of my my Mennonite congregation, calls the Jesus-shaped hole in our classic creeds. Have you ever noticed how all the historic creeds go straight from born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate with nothing at all in between. No teaching, no ministry, no calling of a community of disciples. In fact, practically no Jesus, except the one who came to die for our sins and rise again. Now I do accept that the creeds were formulated to address historic doctrinal controversies. Controversies about the nature of salvation and the nature of God Even so, this is a curiously Jesus-free version of faith. And by focusing, as I believe Luther did, on the role of the cross in determining the individual's eternal destiny, it ends up with little to say about how we actually live in this world in the meantime. In contrast, the Anabaptist hermeneutic places Jesus, including his earthly life, at the center of biblical interpretation, and hence at the center of understanding how we are to live in this world. Jesus is the hermeneutical key to the rest of the scriptures. And this means not just searching for hints and foreshadowings of Christ in the Old Testament, but refusing to read any other part of the Bible except through the lens of Jesus. So the rest of the Bible no longer has value in its own right independently as rules to live by or guidance on how to run a life or how to run a society, but only insofar as we can reinterpret it in the light of Jesus. This has not only theological and ecclesiological implications, i.e. implications about how we think of the church and about the church's role in society, but I think it has huge political implications. The Anabaptists were sometimes known as the Radical Reformation, or in fact, Alan Cryder, husband of Eleanor, who I mentioned earlier, wrote a booklet describing them as God's left wing. Now, the Anabaptist disagreement with the mainstream or magisterial reformers centered around a number of things both in terms of what the church is, how we run the church, and in terms of how the church relates to the society around it. Essentially, the mainstream reformers accepted a continuation of a geographical, rather than a discipleship, model of faith and church. If you were born into a Christian country or region, you were automatically a Christian and initiated into the church from birth. What had been automatically Catholic areas simply became automatically Lutheran or Calvinist areas. This inevitably implied that Christians had a privileged status in relation to the governance of that area. The society was meant to be run on Christian principles, which also, which usually also implied disadvantaging anyone who did not identify as a Christian, and we know how negative Luther's attitudes to Jews were, for instance, something which I, as a Jew by birth, feel quite strongly about. In relation to the Bible, the reformers, who could be seen in some ways as the, the precursors of modern individualism, essentially identified the New Testament as being about individual salvation. Where am I going when I die? This was, and still is for many churches, focused on a future heaven. It did have implications for how we live in this world, but mostly these were about personal morality and integrity. As a result, I believe the reformers were left with no model for how to run a Christian society except the theocracy, or perhaps the would-be theocracy, of the Old Testament, with all its panoply of enforced conformity to the law of God and the use of violence to back that up. Hence, the reformers, just like the Catholic tradition they were supposedly reforming, continued to hunt out heresy or misbehavior and to punish or to attempt to expunge it with what Anabaptists called the sword, but which might equally be the stake or the bonfire. From an Anabaptist viewpoint, this meant the reformers failed to engage with the teachings of Christ, and in particular, his teachings on non-violence and non-retaliation. To them, the use of violence to impose conformity to impose what was supposedly correct Christian behavior and belief was not what they called in the perfection of Christ. And since the society in which they lived, including the established church, had grown habituated to such violence, it meant that those who wanted to live by a different standard would have to form alternative communities in which forgiveness and reconciliation could be practiced as Jesus had taught. This chimed in with their understanding of the church as a community of professed disciples, what they called Believer's Church, which of course also implied Believer's Baptism when you were at an age to understand what you were doing. Believer's Church had no earthly power, but lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. That little phrase, the perfection of Christ, which the early Anabaptists used, leads me to my second observation about an Anabaptist view of scripture. The first observation is that it's Jesus-centered, and Jesus is the yardstick that is used for everything else. The second is also encapsulated in the opening verses of Hebrews, and in that little word, but. This is that the Anabaptists essentially had a progressive view of revelation, centuries before such a thing became fashionable. In other words, the revelation of God was progressive. It developed as people developed, and that earlier understandings were corrected or, or developed by later understandings. And here I think we have to look to another passage where that little word, but, features prominently the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read some excerpts from Matthew 5, 21 onwards. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But, I say to you, do not swear at all. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. And this is, of course, why Mennonites, like Quakers, will not swear oaths in court. They will merely affirm. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. So, but... In these last days, he has spoken by his son. But I say unto you, do you see a pattern here? The revelation in Jesus, both in his teaching and his practice, and ultimately in his crucifixion and resurrection, goes well beyond any previous revelation. And in a sense, it is so bright a light that anything that precedes it comes to look like shadow. Previous revelation is partial, as it were, seeing God in a glass darkly, the light has been gradually dawning, and now in Jesus, the full light of the sun is visible. Now, at one level, this is nothing new. We know this, we've been taught it. The prophets and the law gave us hints and shadows. The full revelation is in Christ, who is, to requote Hebrews, the exact imprint of God's very being. What the early Anabaptists contended, and what I believe, is that we failed to explore the full implications of this, both in how we read the Bible and how we consequentially live. And this impacts both on our personal journeys of discipleship and on our engagement in society. Exploring the full implications of God's revelation is, of course, exactly what Jesus himself is doing in the extracts that I just read from the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking the injunctions of the Hebrew scriptures and remodeling them in the light of his own choice of non-violence and unconditional love. He's not discarding the provisions of the Jewish law. After all, he was a Jew himself. But he's exposing their ultimate inadequacy and partiality and proposing what Paul might call a more excellent way. Take, for instance, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In its original context, it was not so much a statutory sentencing policy, but an ordinance of limitation. You are not to take more than had been taken by the offender to avoid an escalation of violence or a vendetta. In Jesus, this is taken still further, transformed into the law of love, where, whereby you don't even take an eye or a tooth, but you seek reconciliation through the way of forgiveness and acceptance. I think this is the true meaning of Jesus fulfilling the law, that he takes the Old Testament provision for a spiritually healthy life and society and moves it towards its logical conclusion in what the New Testament calls the law of Christ. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is offering us not only a radical way to live as individuals in society, but also a powerful model of how to read the Jewish scriptures in the light of the new covenant he's initiating. And I'm surprised that this has so rarely been noticed or commented on, at least if it has been, I've missed it. Perhaps we prefer the simple, straightforward, rule-based policies of the Old Testament to the creative, risky strategies that Jesus proposes and that his disciples follow in the New Testament. I think there's a great deal of work still to be done exploring the imaginative and frankly sometimes cavalier way that New Testament writers and that Jesus himself used to reapply the Jewish scriptures in their teaching. I find it interesting that there've been numerous attempts by earnest Christians to recall society to the values of the Ten Commandments, which are Jewish, not Christian. But I can't recall any movements to recall society to the the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps because we've rarely attempted to follow it in the first place. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who remarked that Christianity had not been tried and found wanting but had been found difficult and not tried. The third aspect that I want to draw out from the opening of Hebrews, and I think this is less directly relatable to an Anabaptist tradition, is the recognition that there are diverse voices in scripture. Summed up in that little phrase, many in various ways, God spoke to us in the past in many and various ways. Hebrews recognizes that the Jewish scriptures do not speak with a single voice or offer a single version of either theology or salvation history. This is easily demonstrated by looking, for instance, at the different views of kingship in the Old Testament. In one Samuel 8, when the people asked to appoint a king like other nations, which is a very telling phrase, Samuel gives an unrelentingly negative view of what a king will do. He will recruit the nation's sons into his army. He will exploit its daughters to service the needs of his court. However, the books of Kings and Chronicles have a much more ambivalent view of kingship, listing kings who did right in the sight of the Lord and kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord. There are conflicting and different voices within Scripture. Yet still, preachers and teachers insist on peddling what the Bible teaches on X or Y and fail to recognize the varying viewpoints from which we may need to synthesize a Christian attitude. What the Bible teaches is not that simple. Oddly enough, the phrase what the Bible teaches seems to be far more common amongst Christians than what Jesus teaches. Perhaps that's another instance of the Jesus-shaped hole in our theology, a vacuum which may have been filled by elevating the Bible to practically a fourth member of the Trinity. Maybe this is where the idea of diverse voices connects with an Anabaptist tradition. What we ultimately need to do is to subject the varying voices of the Bible including apparently conflicting voices in the New Testament, to the test of how they compare to the teaching of Jesus and the example of Jesus, indeed. This seems to me what Luther so egregiously fails to do when he dismisses the Epistle of James, a Bible book which incidentally is beloved of Mennonites and other Anabaptists, but described by Luther as an epistle of straw, Having established justification by faith as his yardstick for evaluating and interpreting scripture, he then measures the epistle of James against this yardstick and finds it wanting. But is it the right yardstick in the first place? What if instead he took this epistle, traditionally attributed to Jesus' own brother, and measured it by the yardstick of Jesus' own teaching? I suspect he would then find a deeply Jesus-flavored epistle, which doesn't fall into thinking we can be saved by works, but instead insists that the faith which opens us to salvation by grace is not true faith unless it issues in works, an insistence that the early Anabaptists also majored on. In other words, we are not saved by good works, but we are absolutely saved for good works. The voice of James, different from the voice of Paul, then becomes an essential corrective to the uh, seeds of antinomianism, i.e. lawlessness, that Paul warns against in Romans 6. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? While we're looking at Romans, I want to share something I only discovered after nearly 40 years of being a Christian. That up to the Reformation, the phrase rendered in verses such as Romans 3.22 as faith in Jesus Christ, was normally translated as the faith of, or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ it only started to be translated as faith in Jesus Christ at the Reformation. If this is true, it gives us a significantly different emphasis from Luther's interpretation, which was followed by others such as Wesley. It suggests that we're not saved by our own faith, which can so easily be turned into another kind of work, but by the faith exercised by Jesus. As he lived a life and died a death characterized by trust in and obedience to God. So, even our translations can reveal a bias which is not necessarily true to the Bible, but deformed by our own theological preconceptions. I don't know how many of you watched the David Starkey program last night uh, about the Reformation, but he mentioned that Luther had inserted the word alone into the Bible. Um, tacked on to the end of the phrase, by faith. Um, how is that respect for the Bible if we actually think we need to edit it to, uh, to conform it to our own understandings? I can't believe that no one in all those years told me about that translation issue, about faith in Jesus rather than the faithfulness of Jesus. It's almost as though there was a conspiracy to put forward a Lutheran interpretation and no other. There's another aspect of recognizing diversity in the Bible, which connects more immediately with my Anabaptist tradition. And that's the need for a diversity of voices to interpret the Bible. The early Anabaptists insisted that the scriptures were to be interpreted within the discipleship community not handing down ready-made interpretations from above, prepared by scholars or bishops or whatever. Not that I've got anything against bishops. (laughs) Um, And this approach of the Anabaptists goes with their view that the Holy Spirit, who leads us into all truth, is given to the gathered community and not to specially gifted individuals that is not to encourage what has sometimes been called in the context of home groups the sharing of ignorance, or to deny the role of scholars in the theologically educated. Indeed, the early Anabaptists had many highly trained scholars amongst them and made use of their insights. What it is to say is that anyone who talks about God from a position of commitment to Jesus is a theologian. This favoring of communal interpretation reflects the Anabaptist view of the church, which sees the church as a distinctive community, not as an authoritative institution, which is perhaps where I might introduce what I call Zundel's law of community. This states that the difference between community and institution is this. When an individual joins an institution, they have to change to fit the institution. But when they join a community, both they and the community change. But that could be a whole separate talk, which I won't go into now. I talked earlier about Luther's choice of yardstick for evaluating the Epistle of James. Well, of course, the theological term for a yardstick is a canon... And this brings me to one of the objections that have been raised to an Anabaptist tradition of interpretation, that it creates a canon within the canon of Scripture, or more negatively, a pick-and-mix approach to the Bible. In reality, I think we all have our own canon within the canon, which is not always acknowledged, where we privilege certain parts of Scripture over others, or use them as a lens with which to view others. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with this. For instance, no one except the Seventh-day Adventists believes today that we're obliged to keep all the Jewish food laws as Christians. And no one except the surviving tiny group of Samaritans still practices animal sacrifice. We've decided on perfectly good biblical grounds that while the Jewish moral law, in the form of the Ten Commandments, may still apply to us, the ceremonial and ritual law does not. My problem comes when our canon within the canon, by, for instance, focusing on the epistles at the cost of the gospels, actually appears to exclude the earthly life of Jesus. And to treat the incarnation, the life and ministry of Jesus, merely as a route to the atonement, and not of any moral or theological value in its own right. I have even heard the Sermon on the Mount interpreted as a demonstration of how unable we are to obey God's law in our own strength, that effectively the Sermon on the Mount is there to show us how impossible it is to follow Jesus' teaching, which strikes me as a very peculiar form of heresy. Many Anabaptists would openly admit to using a canon within the canon. The New Testament is the canon within the canon of Scripture. The Gospels are the canon within the canon within the canon. And the Sermon on the Mount is the canon within the canon within the canon within the canon. (laughs) Whatever the faults and limitations of this may be, and I'm sure you will find some, it does at least have the virtue of placing Jesus with his radical life and teaching at the center. It seems to me a good measure to use in assessing how far our teaching fosters discipleship and enables us to become more Christ-like rather than simply making us more conformist to a rule-based moral code. Speaking from personal experience, my sense within evangelical churches, and I've been a sort of at the fringes of evangelicalism for many years without ever actually applying that label to myself. And my experience has been that discipleship, if it was mentioned at all in sermons and in home groups and so on, was seen very much in terms of learning to avoid various blatant sins. In other words, keeping our noses clean and behaving ourselves. It certainly didn't include anything that could get us killed, at least in the West, which is how I understand taking up our cross. When Jesus first talked about taking up the cross, he couldn't possibly have meant putting up with your irritating aunt. The cross was the equivalent of the electric chair. And when he asked people to take up their cross, he was asking them to live lives that might get them executed. In my Mennonite experience, I've discovered what I think I always half knew, that discipleship is about learning to love sacrificially and riskily as Jesus loved, rather than sacrificing others on the altar of our own moral judgment. I'd like to finish by offering a couple of examples of how I think a Jesus-centered hermeneutic which acknowledges the progressive nature of revelation and the diversity of biblical voices can be applied both to interpreting the Old and the New Testament. And first I'd like to look at the apparently God-ordained violence or even genocide in the Old Testament, which causes problems not only for Anabaptists who are pacifists, but for many others who are committed to non-violence. A Jesus-centered hermeneutic has to put as its first foundation when it examines such narratives the teaching of Jesus on non-retaliation and his practice of non-violence in choosing to go to the cross rather than call down 20 legions of angels to defend himself. Starting from this foundation, the Mennonite scholar Millard Lind in his book Yahweh is a Warrior observes that in Joshua and other scriptures, Israel is repeatedly told by God to limit their military strength, to do without war horses and chariots, which were the tanks of their day, and to go into battles significantly weaker in military terms than their opponents. This is so that God, rather than the Israelites themselves, can be seen to be the victor against the Canaanite forces. I think there's much to be said for this approach. My problem is that it leaves us with a God who commits genocide instead of a people instructed by God to commit genocide, which doesn't really help us that much. Of course, we now know from archeological evidence that, that the book of Joshua is more of an expression of an aspiration than a record of history. The conquest of Canaan was a lot more limited and incomplete than the Joshua record suggests. This still leaves us with the people who would have liked to wipe out the inhabitants of the land, even if they didn't succeed in doing so. So I find these stories are better addressed by a progressive view of Revelation, where Joshua expresses an earlier understanding of God and of God's wishes, which is superseded by the nonviolence of Jesus. The main point here is that these scriptures can't be taken as prescriptive in any independent way. They're not even necessarily descriptive of what happened, but they can only be read against the measure of the Jesus way. It doesn't mean they're without value, and it doesn't necessarily mean we have to spiritualize them. Um, I think they express an understanding of God's holiness, which is still relevant to us, and an understanding of the seriousness of being committed to God, I just don't think that we can take them as a guide for living today. I think this way of Jesus-centered reading, or Jesus-measured reading, not only helps us with problematic parts of the Old Testament, I'd like to try it out on a passage which I think has actually been greatly misinterpreted by Anabaptists throughout their history. It's Matthew 18:15 to 20, the passage on church discipline that some scholars find so difficult that they see it as an interpolation in Jesus' teaching by a later hand. Anabaptists have traditionally understood this passage as prescribing the practice of shunning, that is, excommunicating and excluding a church member who persists in sin despite a graded process of trying to challenge and reintegrate them. Unfortunately, this practice has been much abused down the years to impose doctrinal or behavioral conformity. What one can say in its favor is that at least the Anabaptists took church discipline seriously in their quest to create a distinctive and holy Christian community. And their version of church discipline was and is a non-violent one, as opposed to earlier and more mainstream churches who imposed discipline by the use of the rack and the stake. With the exception of the um, often-mentioned revolution in Münster, which was an aberration, Anabaptists have never killed anyone for their faith or lack of it. I understand that shunning was a way of of keeping the community of believers distinctive, preventing them from losing their edge and their witness. However, from a truly Jesus-centered perspective, I would suggest a totally opposite interpretation of Matthew 18. I would focus on that last injunction to treat the unrepentant sinner as a Gentile and a tax collector. If we look at Jesus' actual practice, how did he treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He called them, invited them, Eat with them, witnessed to them, healed them. In other words, if someone in your fellowship is not behaving as a Christian, you have to assume they are not really a Christian and evangelize them. I think this also fits the passage much better into its context, which is right between the parable of the lost sheep, which is about bringing back the wanderer, and the instruction to Peter to forgive 70 times 7 which doesn't sit very well with the idea of shunning people from your community. How are we doing for time? Uh, In terms of what is called set theory, understandings of human groupings, shunning is the practice of a bounded set. That is one where the divide between the Christian community and the rest of the world is clearly and firmly defined In contrast, I think the inclusive practice of Jesus shows what is called a centered set in which the core is is clearly distinguished, but which can afford to be a little fuzzier at the edges. He had a committed core of disciples, but was open to a much wider and less committed body of followers, who always had the option, which he made very clear, of making the ultimate commitment. I think my own Mennonite congregation very much started as a bounded set with a novice membership scheme, which was designed to introduce prospective members to the ethos of the church. But it moved in its later years towards something more like a centered set with a small core of members, but at the same time, very open to those who were not ready for that kind of commitment. Um, Had I more time and energy, I probably could have provided many more examples of trying to apply this principle of interpretation to Bible passages. But I hope that that has illustrated briefly how a Jesus-centered way of interpretation might work in practice. Taking all of Scripture seriously, but recognizing that under the new covenant in Christ, its meaning and application might have changed radically from its original context. So then, how do we answer that question posed in the title of this talk? Can the Bible still be read as the unique truth about God? I would want to argue that it can, but that both the Bible and the truth are more complex than we often want to acknowledge. Apart from anything else, we have to remember that up to three quarters of the Bible was not written by Christians. The Bible is not a document, or rather a collection of documents that can be read in a uniform way, a sort of engineering manual that offers us a guide to life rather than to our brand of car. And it never was. It's a corporate, diverse witness that has to be interpreted corporately by a diverse community. Besides... The Bible's own witness is that Jesus, rather than the Bible itself, is the unique truth about God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, does not refer to the written or even the orally transmitted text, but to the one who is its inspiration, its fulfillment, and its end point. Or, as the early Anabaptist scholar Hans Denk put it, I hold holy scripture above all human treasure, but not so highly as the word of God. Thank you.